Mary, how are you doing? Yeah, not bad, thanks, Dan. How about you? Yes, good, thank you. So it looks like we've got the sketch of a roadmap now to start unwinding lockdown. But I guess from our perspective, it feels like we'll be continuing to work as we have been with lots of virtual meetings for some time. I guess it's quite a good thing that we're able to work so easily from home. We've actually got quite a good setup now, haven't we? Yeah, I certainly feel pretty fortunate to be able to carry on doing that, as I'm sure a lot of other people do in our industry. And I suppose at least it means that all the effort I put into my backgrounds for my virtual meetings won't go to waste anyway. (laughs) Absolutely. All those meetings from a desert island. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So on today's episode, for a really interesting discussion of UK property and real assets, we welcome LCP's head of real assets, Andy Jacobson. Andy, welcome to the show. Hi, Dan and Mary. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Good, thanks, Andy. So Andy, could you give us some background on your role at LCP and what head of real assets means? Yeah, so I am responsible for essentially finding good ideas in infrastructure and property for clients with long-term investment horizons. That covers a whole gambit of stuff from UK property, shops and offices, all the way to airports and renewable energy investments across the world. Before we get into all of that, Andy, why don't you go ahead and tell us one thing we should all know about you that we won't find on your LinkedIn profile? have anything too, too crazy. I mean, I'm a keen runner, I guess, but I guess that's a little bit more. Here's one that's interesting. I'm a big fan of fancy dress. I have a group of friends who really enjoy fancy dress parties or going out in fancy dress or going away in fancy dress even. Big part of my life. Probably uh, probably one that I'd like to hide from my LinkedIn profile because some (laughs) some, uh, interesting pictures up there, which are probably best for for lots of people not to see. But uh, yeah, certainly I get a lot of fun out of it and we have a lot of fun sort of getting costumes and doing some fun stuff. Favourite outfit ever? Favourite outfit ever. I, (laughs) why don't I link it to the two things? I did a marathon in a gnomes outfit, which was great for charity. And so I earned a bit of money through my two pastimes. So yeah, there are some pictures of that one, but uh, yeah, that was a pretty fun one. Cool. Well, we'll be on the lookout for an invite to one of your parties once all this (laughs) winds down. We can go back to that sort of thing. (laughs) Cool. All right, well, let's get into the discussion then, Andy. I mean, clearly real assets, UK property, like everything, a lot of focus on that last few months, all sorts of issues there to sort of dig into. How would you sort of summarize things, you know, for investors, for fund allocators sitting down, looking at their fund returns, trying to assess where things are? What are people looking at UK property funds and thinking right now? Well, I think where we are right now is people are just trying to work out what is the next steps. If I was to sort of summarize the position of UK property, where funds are in a sort of a state of suspended animation. Properties are very interesting assets. It's tangible. It's a physical asset. And so aside from clearly the financial ramifications of the pandemic and what that means for businesses and tenants that use them, property as an investment requires people to interact with it physically. So let's just looking at value as an example. So valuations work on an appraisal basis. That means that surveyors and independent values actually have to go in and appraise actual buildings to determine their worth. They also rely quite heavily on transactions actually taking place to get a steer on what the value of property is. Clearly with lockdown, with the lockdown at the moment, that's just not physically possible. And so valuers have not been able to appraise the value of properties in the same way they otherwise would have. 
what they've actually done, as they've said to they sort of with the valuations they've given at the end of March, certainly they've attached a material uncertainty clause to those valuations, which essentially means they can't reliably give a value of the underlying properties. And as a result, funds quite sensibly, managers of funds quite sensibly have said that they're not really comfortable allowing their underlying investors to trade on those uncertain values. And so they've suspended funds for the time being until really there's some more clarity on when the lockdown will end. So funds are suspended, which means that investors can't sort of buy or sell their units, but we're still getting some sort of values through. So you can still quote a unit price. There are still performance sort of being quoted, but we just sort of um, have to be a bit cautious with those numbers. That's correct. So I think so. the valuers are giving a figure basically using all the information they've got available, which is limited given the circumstances to give a value. And so I think at the moment I'm treating with caution those property values and what it might mean. I think it's really worth saying, that's a really important point, that at this stage, the reason that funds are suspended is not a liquidity issue. Most often that's the biggest driver of funds suspending trading. It's up until the end of March, it wasn't the case that lots of people were putting in redemption requests to try and get their cash out of property. And that was a driver suspended as purely a function of the fact that there's just not the reliable on that valuation figure. But that said, things are evolving, things are changing, and that figure, the sort of performance um, figures to date, um, I think has to be treated with some caution. And what sort of figures are coming through when we look at Q1 performance? So if we're looking at bricks and mortar property, the funds that a lot of clients like to access to property, the fall or the total return over the three-month period to the end, period to the end of March was about minus 1.3%, which seems relatively low in the context of that volatility. We are seeing a bit of a, a differentiation across different sectors within property. So if you recall, UK property funds invest in, in retail, they invest in offices and industrial. Retail has been the most impacted sector certainly in terms of what we're seeing the numbers. Of course, that makes lots of sense because this whole swathes of shops and shopping centers have just shut down completely. I'm not trading at all. I saw a stat the other day, 85% of the shops in the UK are essentially shuttered up. And so what that's meant in terms of the returns to the end of March is anywhere between a 5 and 10% fall in values for retail, again, depending on the kind of industry that they're invested in. It does look a little bit surprising surprising and hard to reconcile with some of the listed performance right you look at the lights of hammerson and into some of the reits real estate investment trusts that invest in retail property now they are levered aren't they so they have debt in there which obviously magnifies things but still it looks like a bit hard to reconcile but then you can always argue which of the two is sort of right and which is wrong and it's a bit hard to know isn't it it is tricky to know, and I think it is very useful to look at listed defaults, which have been more significant you're right Dan to get a sort of a steer of a sort of forward-looking measure of what might happen. One observation I would make is that obviously things happen pretty quickly towards the end of March. And so you don't know how much is factored into the the bricks and mortar kind of valuations. What I think has one specific difference, I think bricks and mortar valuations would have looked at probably the income production, certainly in the short term, and that rents are less likely to be coming all in the same volume. That's what we've actually seen. And that sort of short-term factor has been priced into property valuations. But what hasn't been priced in, perhaps to the same extent as listed as a sort of more forward-looking projection. So what will the impact of recession have on property? How will that impact rental growth going forward? 
course, there's also just a sort of market sentiment, sort of risk appetite kind of function within this, which makes it sort of more volatile. So all those are sort of baked into the list of numbers. So I think it's a useful, a useful comparison, something I'm looking at quite closely, but it's difficult to say, I think that the direction or the level of fall will be exactly the same. There are some differences within the two ways of measuring it. Put those returns into context for us a little bit, Andy. So coming into this year, there'd been some issues with UK property funds around the 2016 Brexit referendum, I think, suspended then. And then we'd seen some reasonably positive returns since then. What's, what's the context been like? So, I mean, I think looking long term, property has been a very successful investment. I mean, I think we've had a, some hiccups along the way, pretty strong stable returns really since the, like, the financial crisis. I would say over the last sort of six to 12 months, returns had been beginning to waver a little bit whilst income returns are healthy and that's a key driver of property just steady income coming in from the underlying properties we're seeing a reappraisal of valuations gradually particularly driven with the retail sector over a reasonable number of years now we've been seeing a restructuring of that sector largely just driven by a significant oversupply of shops really and the fact that people are changing their shopping habits they're moving online and businesses retail businesses have really failed to that trend and so retail had been a significant this within the property sector as a result we've seen we've been seeing gradually declining market values in that sector specifically really interesting stat is when i started out researching property 10 15 years ago retail was in the region of a sort of 40% 40% component of the index and now we're looking at more like 23%. So there's been this long-term structural decline which has been impacting property returns. Offset by other factors, I think offices had actually been relatively resilient despite all the Brexit impact or Brexit risks. I think office demand for offices had been relatively strong and had sort of stayed pretty robust. It was beginning to taper a little bit, I think, as we seem to be getting towards the end of the cycle. And then offset industrials and logistics and those kinds of business, which have actually very much benefited from some of the trends that retail has suffered from. And actually there's been significant demand for those. So there was a bit of a mixed bag, but the general trend was a tapering returns a little bit weaker. And if anything, I think where we are looking at it today, the pandemic's probably going to exacerbate and accelerate some of the structural challenges that we've been seeing in property. Some really interesting points there. I mean, I think it can be easy to sort of jump to looking at retail property, can't it? And, and those are the ones that seem to be grabbing the headlines. But you make the good point there that that's a dwindling portion of the overall index and you've got most funds presumably would would invest roughly in line with those index sector portions. So you've got a lot of big investments in offices and logistics and industrial sort of hubs as well, which have, have just different price pressures going on there. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing is, I think that's sometimes missed because obviously what's going on in retail is significant. I don't want to underplay it because obviously it has been a driver of returns. But one of the sort of hidden structural themes is the prominence of industrial properties, the strong returns that they've had over the last three, four, five years, really. And that's sort of almost offset a lot of, you know, certainly up until this point, offset a lot of the falls that we've seen. So that is a theme. But of course, where we are with the pandemic, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And I'd say the expectations that I had when we chatted earlier in the year will have changed as a function of the pandemic and what that actually might mean for the way that businesses use built, use commercial property space. We've spoken a fair bit about how the virus has affected the retail sector particularly, but the other sector, I suppose what I'm thinking here is managers of property funds that have already been looking at that trend within retail and and picking out the types of properties, the winners where retail is the loser. How have those sort of sectors fared through the virus so far, acknowledging it's very early days? We've talked briefly about retail. That's definitely been most impacted just because of the lack of ability to use it. Looking at offices, a little bit more resilient. So if you're speaking to the managers over, whilst they collected across all their portfolios, most of the rent for the first quarter of the year, 
rent collection levels are lower Q2 and I expect potentially even lower over Q3. Rent levels, rent collection levels for offices are around the 80% mark. It sort of depends on the business. A lot of offices, certainly service professional service firms are doing what we're doing right now. They've they've sort of moved their operations to working from home basis and they're able to operate on that basis and obviously then still paying their rents. Of course, some businesses are impacted just because of the natural, the nature of their business, and and so there's a limitation there. But that sector has been relatively resilient in the so far. Industrials, again, the same. It sort of depends what kind of business. I think the rental collection stats roughly are on the 60 to 70 percent market mark for industrials broadly. So, and again, if you think of a, I don't know, a sort of a logistics business that's supporting Click and Connect or quite a local supply chain, that's sort of pretty much operating as normal to an extent, perhaps operation a little bit different but it's still able to pay its rent whereas logistics business around an airport where obviously flows have fallen dramatically just because the airports shut it up themselves they're a little bit worrying perhaps have more concern paying their rent so it has been a bit of a mixed bag but it really does depend on the underlying tenant businesses a number of my clients invest in property funds and one of the reasons they invest i think you've already touched on it andy is the sort of relatively high level of consistent income that you can achieve from investing in this sort of fund. Where the funds are suspended, the, are they still paying out income wherever they are receiving rent? It's just that it could be at, at a lower level than... This has been sort of phase one of the property manager's response. What do we do with tenants who are, of some of which are entering into significant financial strife? So our preference is diversified funds. And so it's a mix of different businesses, mix of different sectors. And I think on if you look across a, a rustral poll of the kinds of funds, diversified funds I've been looking at, rent collection over to second quarter is anywhere between 65 and 85%, depending on, on the underlying um, tenants and sector exposures. What managers have been doing as landlords, I think I've taken quite a responsible approach. I think for a lot of businesses where revenues turned off overnight, there's not a lot of businesses that can survive for a long-term period when cash isn't essentially coming the door. And as responsible landlords, I think they've tried to play their part where businesses are in genuine financial strife. They've tried to look where they can help out their tenants to survive the short-term cash flow crisis, given that their cost basis hasn't reduced at all by looking at things like perhaps moving from quarterly advance payments to monthly advance payments, in some cases deferring rent with the promise to pay that back perhaps in 12 months or 18 months time or phase that payback over a period of time, in some cases a rental holiday or even negotiating aspects of the lease, for example, removing a break option for the tenant in response in exchange for a rent-free period or something like that, anything to do to try and help support businesses along the lines, that will mean, I think, that there will be less rental income coming in the door and distributions within funds will in some cases be lower, anywhere from sort of 25%, perhaps even a bit lower, depending on the nature of the strategy. And in some cases, some funds might actually just turn it off temporarily while they think it's better to retain cash from the fund. So that is going to be something I think we'll see over the coming months. But that's something really good to hear, actually, that they're taking such a responsible approach there. Because, I mean, reading things like the the business section in the Sunday Times, you know, entrepreneurs, small business owners, lots of restaurant owners are really calling for landlords to try and sort of partner up with them a little bit in getting through this. Because, of course, there's limited, well, there's limited point in being overly aggressive in the way you enforce things if, as you say, people simply can't pay. And, you know, it is nice to hear that they're trying to put forward easements where they can, where they have the ability to as well. 
I think they see themselves as responsible investors and looking, trying to support businesses. But of course, there's a mutual interest in this as well. I mean, I think to the extent that businesses can survive and obviously continue paying rent going forward, that's better for the landlord and the investor. Clearly going into a recession where you're having to find a new tenant for a, a building that because they default is not in anyone's mutual interest. It is worth saying that one of the key sort of government policies entering into the pandemic is the removal of forfeiture, which essentially means that it was not possible for a short-term period, I think, to the end of June, for landlords to remove tenants um, because of the non-payment of rent. And so that's been a factor of decision-making. And I think most landlords, most managers have wholeheartedly supported that approach, albeit that I think we have to be aware, and they're certainly aware, that some tenants probably are taking advantage of the scenario. They're not obligated to pay rent and they've got that protection. It means that some are incentivized perhaps to to not pay rent or try and negotiate on their rent obligations when they otherwise could still pay. And so managers are very aware of that. So the, the phrase they used to be is they will make rental concessions if appropriate. So that's where they're trying to get that balance right. Yeah, that's a good point you make there because the landlord-tenant relationship can be easily sort of characterised as kind of having this sort of old, old-fashioned idea of sort of an exploitative rent-seeking landlord and a kind of you know the poor old tenant sort of thing. And be as often these days where you would have a pension fund as the effectively as a landlord and a tenant that's owned by a U.S. private equity company, let's say. And so you've got to guard against those situations where the private equity company just says to all their firms right, just stop all rent because that's the low-hanging fruit and we can just put it back to the landlords, right? So that's a tricky one, isn't it? It absolutely is. And I think that's something managers are really cognizant of. And you mentioned sort of private equity firms and obviously that ownership model in sec- parts of the UK property sector is, is sort of popular. And I think it's fair to let some, some landlords have been really aggressive with it. And so I think it's responsibility of the manager protecting the fiduciary interests of the investors we advise to make sure that they're wise to that and, make, and sort of looking out for that, looking out for their investors and so far as not uh, accepting or considering rental concessions in a sort of considered kind of, considered kind of way. Andy, just going back a second, I mean, we've talked a lot about this particular crisis, but I mean, you wrote a piece earlier in the year, I think it was February, we'll link to it in the show notes. And obviously there you talked a little bit about the general trend in UK retail property anyway, which really goes back quite a long way. I mean, I think we had some data in that piece showing that about 20,000 stores have closed in the UK over the last decade. This was before before the start of this year. So things like Debenhams have closed a lot of stores, BHS, Marks & Spencer, lots of big names as well as small names which was clearly affecting the high street at that point. So how do we see the continuation of that trend now with what's happened? I think in terms of looking at retail, I think it's going to accelerate possibly the structural change that we're seeing. I think it's going to be a little bit of a survival of the fittest. Certainly the weakest retailers, this might push some over the edge. I think we're going to see some ruthless cutting within other retailers, refinancing with the sector. And to be honest, I think the unfortunately, <laughs> the pandemic is only, I think, going to exacerbate some of the issues that we've seen within retail. If anything, one of the sort of longer term considerations I think that I'm certainly thinking about as a researcher of property is what this might mean for the future. The reality is that I don't know how the impacts of the pandemic long term may change the way that businesses like to use space. So the simplest firm, simplest form, sorry, as a landlord of property, you are a seller, provider of space to occupiers who use it. And if users in the future are looking to change the way they use that space that is obviously has an impact on me as the seller because I have to to make sure that it's useful an obvious example in that is within offices I think a lot of people have been surprised by how well generally professional firms have adapted to working 
online, agile working. Certainly, you know, the, the fact that we're having this podcast remotely is something I didn't even think was possible, if I'm honest, <laughs> right after the pandemic. And so what might that sort of trend mean for the future of offices going forward? Now, at its simplest form, you may think, well, some really skeptical CEOs might be looking at the, how successful this is going. I think, actually, maybe this is something I can build into a way that my staff work on an ongoing basis. So that perhaps that means that I might require less office space. I, I can sort of make that argument. But then if you look at the flip side, well, a trend that we've been seeing in offices is sort of co-working and sort of hot desking and sort of reduce the amount of office space. But in light of COVID and what that might mean in terms of people working together in certain space, perhaps people will be less comfortable hot desking. Perhaps people will be less comfortable working so closely. So that's a sort of opposite trend. Then you look at something like productivity. I think this is fine while we're working over a short-term period from home, but if this is a long-term way to, is a long-term solution to the way people work, what will that mean in terms of productivity? Will CEOs be concerned about that? So there's all these sort of bits that are being thrown into the mix just because of this one issue, which may well ultimately impact the way that people decide to use offices going forward. And that's something that I think is going to have to evolve and develop. I'm thinking, uh, certainly I'm beginning to start on that based on the conversation I'm having with managers. One idea that I keep reading about is this idea of turnover-based rents. I think this is more in retail space where rents would be linked to a shop or a retail space's turnover as opposed to, so I guess it's a bit more like somehow owning a sort of slice of equity in the business rather than a fixed payment. What do you make of that? And what are managers saying about that? I read an article in the Times from I think stem from a conversation from the property leader within Sports Direct. So a little bit skeptical of, given of the source, given, of course, you know, they obviously Sports Direct take a notoriously aggressive approach with the landlords. I think one of the risks, one sort of high level risk I'm concerned about is this balance between the landlord and the tenant. And I think that's something that we've already seen. If you just look at the removal of forfeiture that we've seen in the last three months, that's already a strengthening of the tenant's hands, as it were, albeit it's a short-term measure and sort of made sense given the consequences. Turnover-based rent is obviously mentioned in this article. I haven't seen anything on the ground as yet. I mean, I think where, with regards to leases and how to deal with this going forward, it is a negotiation and tenants are negotiating with the landlords on what to do. But most of that is working around the same framework of leases, working on the same basis. So it's still extending the lease or removing a break or that kind of thing. One thing I have seen or I've heard of is rents linked to sort of a profitability threshold. So sort of a bit tying up rents a little bit more to the success of the business. But clearly those kinds of moves, if they were to develop, would I think probably be less advantageous from my perspective as an investor just because they're sort of linking the success of an investment in a property to those directly with the underlying tenants and so it's not something I'd necessarily be in favor of so I think again there's all of these all of these potential changes are in the mix but as of now the turnover based rental model in retail is not something I think we're seeing to any great degree in terms of negotiations. Because I suppose taking a step back and thinking about why do our clients invest in property? Why do you have your role as head of research in that area? One of the things we really like about property is the level of income and it being quite stable. You lose that with that idea. The fact that property prices and the sort of returns you get from property aren't quite so correlated to things like the equity market. And again, if you're pegging rent to the success of businesses, you're just really making it more equity-like, aren't you, in, in every aspect, really? Absolutely. I think that would be a certainly for really long term investors that really are hungry for certainty of income, that would be a negative if it were to go that way. But as I say, I just want to stress that that's not something I've necessarily seen at all. I think if things were to go that level, I think it would you'd have to really, really think carefully about how it's sort of fitted in the long term investment strategy. I mean, I guess one of the trends I've been seeing and we've been seeing gradually is just the switch from 
sort of what I call mainstream property, where it's about the strategies about the growth of rental income over time to strategies that are have longer term leases or certainty of income. The rents are linked to inflation or fixed over to the 20 year period, that kind of trend. That's been a huge trend we've seen among some of our clients, particularly pension fund clients, looking for that kind of long term valuing the long-term income and the inflation-linked uplifts quite highly. It's a big trend we've seen, isn't it, Mary? Yeah, absolutely. Something I've sort of seen in terms of just demand, in terms of where we're sort of getting requests for help with sort of property selections, that sort of desire for secure income has been a sort of key prevalent driver of making allocations. I think that trend was happening anyway, and any sort of change systematic to the extent we've talked about in sort of mainstream property would sort of, I think, accelerate that trend towards more certainty. The other area that you've previously highlighted is moving away from a UK focus. Have you got a feel for kind of how property globally has been impacted by COVID, but also some of the structural trends we've been talking through? Some of the trends are still there. I think what's going on retail was impacting different parts of the globe in similar ways to a greater or lesser extent. Some of the the sort of perhaps medium to long-term structural pressures and offices, I think, will play out. I guess I still have a preference for allocating globally insofar as you're not, you're diversifying your exposure to different property cycles, different demands for property in a way that you can't really do if you're focusing on just the UK market. So I think as a way to get exposure to real estate over the long term, having a global approach sort of makes lots of sense. But I think there are still some headwinds that might be a consequence of the pandemic and what that means for the use of space, which global property won't necessarily be completely immune to. And so while we're still early days, we're only really six weeks into trying to understand that that's something that I'm focusing on trying to understand a little bit better in terms of what it means from a global property perspective. But the answer will be very different in Australia compared to what's going on in the States, compared to what's going on in Europe. And each will have their own sort of issues, albeit there will be some commonality across all of them. By diversifying that way, I think you're in a better position than just being focused on one market if you're looking for a long-term hold in property. I guess it's very tough decisions right here today for investors in UK property, right? Because I suppose, firstly, like we said, these funds are suspended. So even if you wanted to sell and go global, you can't for now. When they do trade again, we could be looking at potentially falls in, in values and those sort of things. I mean, you highlighted some of the uncertainties around property, but none of them sound particularly good for UK property, right? So I guess we were in that situation where we're seeing a very uncertain, but probably biased towards a negative future for it, but just in a difficult position to take a view. Is that where we are? It is challenging. Unfortunately, there's a little bit of gloom in some sectors of the industries. I would say just to put a bit more light on it, I think within the industrial's logistics theme, I think there's still a, some positive light there. I think what we said, one of the challenges of the pandemic has been very complex international supply chains. And if that does mean that there's a bit more of a localization of the flow of trade, logistics, and that kind of thing, then there's still going to be demand, demand there. Also, there's not a massive oversupply within that sector as well in terms of new buildings. And so that should sort of be positive as a landlord. So there are little pockets, but I'd say there are more risks within the sector overall. I think you're right, Dan. I think the broad expectation is there might be some more future performance looking out for the next few months. There might be some falls to look out for. For example, I've seen one prominent UK forecaster predicting a sort of 10% kind of fall if we enter a normal recession. There are risks around that. I mean, if things are more uncertain, for example, we have perhaps waves of different lockdowns or that kind of thing and how that might impact business, it might be more severe than that. So I think the, the scenario in that case was more like a sort of 20% kind of fall over the next couple of years. 
there's not a lot clients can do at the moment while we're in the state of suspended animation. But one of the things I think we just need to always be wary of is that whilst a lot of clients access property through funds that are traded regularly, it's not a liquid asset class. And I think if we were to see a significant amount of redemptions as and when the property market does open, these funds can trade. And the reality is they're not going to be able to meet a large amount of cash requests, albeit they're relatively well, a reasonable amount of cash in portfolios. But if there comes a point where it's just not possible to sell properties quick enough to raise cash. And so I think there is a risk that liquidity mechanisms might be tested if there's significant redemption pressures and when things reopen. Yes, that's a good point. So we could see a situation where things reopen, but if a lot of people start to want to sell, some of the funds will just have to gate again because of liquidity issues. So it could potentially be quite a while to work this situation out in UK property to get people the assets they want and get those units in the holders in the right holders' hands, as it were. There is that risk and all property funds have some sort of mechanism to manage that risk. And as you say, gating is the usual form. And so I think if anyone's wanting to exit property quickly, there just is a risk that's going to take some time to get the money out that they want to quickly. What's your sense in how clients are handling this conversation right now, Mary? I mean, I suppose property is generally a sort of a small allocation for a lot of portfolios. And, and I get in a lot of cases, there are bigger questions out there, aren't there, and bigger issues. Have you been approaching that question, if at all? Yeah, yeah, that's right, Dan. So generally, as Andy just said, this isn't a liquid asset class. And we're always very keen to make that very clear when our clients are going in. So we don't typically have very large allocations. We don't typically have none of my clients, for example, need to sell their property to meet sort of required payments. They've got plenty of other liquid assets. It's not the first port of call. As we also touched on at the start, whilst there's a big pinch of salt around any performance numbers, they're not anywhere near as dramatic as the figures that we're seeing across different asset classes. So generally, property hasn't been the biggest topic of conversation, I suppose. It's not been the biggest focus. I suppose the other thing is most of the schemes, pension schemes I work with were invested in property funds back in 2016. And as you mentioned before, Andy, when we had the outcome of the Brexit referendum, a number of funds gated at that point in time. Very different situation, very different reason for gating. But nevertheless, I think whilst often investors have short memories, 2016 isn't so long ago. And so actually a number of investors are sort of remembering the fact that there was gating and it didn't all end completely in tears. Again, different situation, but I think the fact that that's happened relatively recently means that people aren't panicking at this point just yet. And there are so many other things to think about in relation to the virus that I think I don't think anyone's blaming property funds for the fact that they are suspending at this point in time. And I do think there is that positive angle at this point in time that it's not because of liquidity that they've shut. I've been making that point fairly clearly to my clients as well. I think there is a behaviour element, though, and I've seen this in the past when property funds gate i think existing which is the right thing to do and as i say i think in when there's an absence of liquidity property funds need to protect all of their investors interests and gating is one of the ways that they can manage that risk but the issue is though i think that when funds gate it puts concern into other investors as to perhaps they should be doing something because other people are putting a redemption request for example and so you can get the slight perpetual cycle redemption sort of cycle effect which when it's happened before which with some funds after the last financial crisis there was we did see this there's a sort of slight snowball of effect which i think is a bit of a risk if the redemptions do spike as i say it's not to say that that they necessarily will but i think as i say to the extent people think that they want to try and avoid some of the potential structural risks that we might see in the future in property and want to put get their money out quickly i think that might well be a challenge but i do have a question for you if you don't mind it's because one something i sort of been sort of mulling on so i was speaking to a manager last week and they were just in terms of what this might happen and they were sort of predicting a sort of 10 percent 
10 to 15 percent adjustment in total in values as a result of the pandemic and then sort of going doing a bit of a sort of back of a five packet kind of calculation they worked out that that would be a sort of yield premium of five percent relative to gilts so for a long-term investor looking at your sort of client focus would that be sufficient reward to do you think for some of your clients to as a long-term investor to sort of take the, some of the risks that might be out there for property it's a good question isn't it i mean i suppose the forward-looking returns on a lot of asset classes have gone up recently so you have to look at it in that context but i mean that's the sort of ballpark you're aiming for from your growth portfolios i suppose isn't it so it, it certainly certainly puts it in the mix i guess the question the slight worry is some of these diversity issues that are hanging across that sector in terms of is it quite focused on is it very vulnerable to what happens in uk retail or other things very similar argument to uk equities versus global equities funnily enough some great yields available in uk equities some great prospective returns available but worries there that that's too focused on oil and gas tobacco and some of those sectors like that so other things being equal you might take a slightly lower yield from a much more diversified and robust portfolio it's probably my best answer mary what do you reckon I think you're right. It certainly puts it in the mix. There are probably a number of other asset classes also in the mix. I think that the risks that we've talked at length about today probably point to a smaller allocation, if anything, but I don't think it takes it off the table from my perspective. Yeah. I guess in terms of where I'm looking, I still think the long term, the long lease property kind of trend, if you're going to make an allocation property, that seems to be a bit more robust. It's not going to be completely immune. I think it's exposed to some sectors like hotels and leisure, which have got their short term challenges. But fortunately, it's less exposed to retail supermarkets only. But so far, supermarkets have been very resilient to this crisis. So I think that's where you, you think to allegates. But potentially, one thing I'm thinking about, and I know some of my colleagues have thought about as well, is lending, property lending as well. feels like this is a bit of a lender's environment, and perhaps that's a, another way to get a property exposure by being a property lender. Certainly, it feels like there's more strength or more options for you as a lender in this environment than perhaps prior. So that's something else to think about. Another asset class, while we're talking about other asset classes in the mix, but another part of your remit responsibilities, if you like, is infrastructure, which is obviously a, a huge asset class spanning globally. So perhaps we chat about that very briefly now. How are we seeing that having performed in the last few months and prospects for that looking forward? That's a really interesting asset class. And again, some commonalities with property again they're tangible assets people actually need to use them and use the investor rely on them being used and in, in a normal way for, for you to get your return so just breaking that down a little bit the kinds of funds that we're looking at tend to be diversified so they invest across a whole range of diversified infrastructure assets that ranges from what i call the sort of transport gdp linked assets like airports toll roads seaports or through to more sort of utilities so regulated investments to more contracted kind of investments like renewable energy investments or oil pipelines and that kind of thing and so there's been a whole mix of impacts and reactions in terms of depending on the underlying property investments but looking across the diversified funds that we've invested in that i look at more closely the impact has actually been less severe than you would have thought i think falls in local currency terms anywhere between one percent to four or five percent in terms of an adjustment to reflect the impacts of the pandemic so they've certainly been a good diversifier at this stage but of course the healthy caveat with that is that like property the property valuations are subjective they are done independently and the valuers provide the the sort of valuations for these assets but ultimately there's so much uncertainty out there and so there might be some future effects potentially in the future that are not sort of priced in at the moment 
you get that same sort of private versus public issue we were talking about in property, don't you? I mean, for example, I think there are some airport groups out there that are listed and some that are held in, in unlisted vehicles and seen quite big differences in terms of how prices for those have changed. But to just run us through quickly how the pricing process would work for some of those independent valuers. What are, what are they actually looking at? In short, two sort of broad elements. One is a sort of projected cash flow for the business. And I think airports is a great example. So airports, passenger volumes have fallen in the region of fallen in the region of 90%. They're barely being used relative to what's their norm. So infrastructure managers have then reforecast cash flows going out over the next sort of five years to reflect what's happened with the pandemic. Obviously, taking into account their the revenues are significantly down on the short term period, but they've also factored in a very slow, gradual recovery in passenger volume over the next sort of four or five years. So a sort of broad consensus based on the managers that own airports, you know, they're sort of predicting not predicting passenger volumes to reach the sort of normal levels pre the pandemic for three, four years. Years. And so all that sort of baked into the valuation. On the other flip side, independent value is set a discount rate, taking into account lots of factors, including what's going on in the listed market, looking to account the cost of borrowing, what the risk-free rate is, all that kind of thing, and set a discount rate, and they set a value on that basis. And that sort of then evolved on a sort of three-month basis, for example. That's a sort of broad approach. So they are making an allowance for the fact that the recession is likely to have an impact on, for example, an airport and the way it's used. But as I say, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of how this thing will evolve. I think one interesting to say, say just actually to spring to mind, just for a conversation I had last week with Evaluer, is that within airports and listed markets, the earnings over price ratio within listed were significantly higher than enlisted than in, in unlisted. And so his argument is that leverage and that fact meant that they had further to fall. And that was one of the reasons he gave us to why we'd seen a bigger adjustment enlisted versus unlisted. There's a different the nature of the underlying assets within listed is sometimes another factor that is worth considering when you're thinking of them. You're saying they got marked up more heavily on the way up. Yeah. So they had fallen the way down. So you, you can't you can't just look at the negative returns on the downside and, and compare it that way. You've got it. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about thought about that. That is interesting. Always needs to treat it with a healthy amount of skepticism because, you know, obviously he's speaking about his own particular angle. But, you know, that's worth always remember that the underlying infrastructure assets that are owned by lesser companies, whilst having a lot of similarities, are also different in some ways to, to unlisted. And so there's a factor there. It's interesting because I was speaking to a, an infrastructure manager and the, yes, the caveat, <laughs> given things move very quickly these days, is this was probably two weeks ago. And they were saying that infrastructure asset class as a whole and airports is probably the exception here. They expected returns to be less sort of correlated to the timing of lockdown than a lot of other asset classes. So we've sort of touched on in the past that when we had Natalie on, we're talking about macroeconomic outlook and saying actually economic recovery potentially or economic suffering and then recovery potentially was quite heavily linked to the length of lockdown and the length of severe lockdown and the length of unwinding as well. This infrastructure manager was saying this is one of the only asset classes that isn't so heavily linked to that. Now clearly airports they're having to to build in a a lower level of usage and a gradual recovery but you touched on a couple of the other areas of infrastructure investing and actually they potentially aren't quite so heavily impacted by lockdown itself. Obviously you've got the sort of oil exposure as well to think about But I guess one big question for me on infrastructure is always a sort of government support, government intervention element of it. It almost, we often phrase it as political risk, you know, is the government willing to spend money on infrastructure or not? And I guess this pandemic and the government spending in relation to this pandemic pulls that into question a bit on a forward-looking basis. I think it does. I mean, it's been, I mean, there's two sort of elements you brought up there. So will government support essential infrastructure if it's facing significant strides? I think 
probably yes, because it's essential. The reality is that the whole purpose of infrastructure it supports economies, it supports economic activity, and to the extent that is essential. So I think there's that sort of backstop. Or be to say I don't, I haven't sort of seen you know government sort of stepping in certainly the kinds of assets that are in the funds that I've looked at. I think. One thing to factor in, though, and this is taking a slightly more longer term fact, is that governments rely, are going to, I think, rely on private capital to finance infrastructure investment going forward. Just purely, if anything, exacerbated by what's going on, ballooning of public balance sheets and the lack of ability to invest as a government in new infrastructure means that it's going to rely on private capital to build the things that are required to support economies in the future. And the reality to ensure that works, it's going to have to be attractive as an investment to ensure that long-term investors are going to deploy their capital. So there is potential for more opportunity in a way, you could argue, just by what's going on. But as I say, I think in the short time, you know, certainly it's not immune and there are some challenges. But you are right, and this is the last point, you need to say that it's a diversified mix. So if you're owning a utility company, so if it's water or or energy, they're still being used in the same way. And so the revenues for those businesses aren't impacted. Same way with renewable energy. Again, it's a broad mix. Some depends on the kind of underlying investment, but as a broad mix, it's contracted income. People are still using power in a way to some extent. The fact, you know, <laughs> the sort of peaks in the afternoon are even higher it's because people are working from home. A lot of these sort of infrastructure businesses are still generating revenues. And so in a diversified portfolio where, yes, you've got exposure to transport infrastructure, which are, is impacted in the short term, but you've got other investments in there, which are definitely more it does mean that your point about the fact that the sort of lockdown and the sort of short-term impacts uh, means that infrastructure is a little bit more immunized, I think, is a fair one. Hence, I think, why we've seen that in the returns. But as I say, there's still, I do want to caveat that, there's still some uncertainty out there. And it'll be interesting, you know, depends what the position will be like in six months' time as to as to what impacts will bear in terms of returns. So, Andy, we're coming towards the end of our time now. How can people find you and get access to your articles and your thinking, etc.? You can find me certainly on the uh, LSP website. I'm going to link there. I'm also on LinkedIn. You can certainly reach out to me on there as well if you'd like some further information. Great. And do you have any recommendations for the listeners in terms of kind of books, articles, podcasts? One book that I've read recently, and I, I wanted to felt want to understand what's going on within this issue of global warming and the impact that's having on our world. I read a book called Uninhabitable Earth, which was written by an author who doesn't call himself an advocate of what's going on in global warming, but he's a writer and he's sort of Try to represent the impact of global warming has had on, on communities across the world. And he wanted to represent his experiences within a book and try and set out what he's seen now that's a more local level and how global warming may impact communities and people's lives over the period. Just to sort of set out in a more readable context what the risks there are. And I have to say it was a hard read because, I mean, from my perspective, it certainly opened my eyes to what some of the sort of worst outcomes of global warming I think with it being such a prevalent issue, obviously an investment as well. Mm. So I felt I just wanted yeah. to really try and understand the human side of it. And yeah, it was tough to read, but I think well, That book has got quite a lot of profile recently, hasn't it? I haven't read it, but I think it's been in some of the bestseller lists. Yeah, it has. It has, yeah. I was seeing a physio actually for some can't run at the moment so I'm, <laughs> so I'm getting a bit of treatment he recommended it to me and it, as I say I'm not going to pretend it was an eye-opening read and I wouldn't say necessarily pleasant but I felt that it was something I wanted to understand better just given that it seems so much in public narrative at the moment yeah great so Andy now it's time for our speed round Ooh. the context of the speed round is you can be given a series of choices between two things and in each case you have to say which of the two you back for the coming decade okay now of course we aren't going to hold you to any of these answers, but we kind of might. You can choose to expand on your answers or not, or just move on. Okay. So 
Speed round. Which of the following would you back for the next decade? Active or passive management? Passive. It does depend. I prefer passive, but obviously it doesn't work. Okay. Right. We'll let you have that. Developed or emerging markets? Emerging markets. US or European equities? Probably US equities, I think. Economics or computer science for a degree? Computer science, definitely. That's sort of career of the future. Ed Sheeran or Justin Bieber? <laughs> definitely Ed Sheeran. I get a lot of banter from my friends from my adventure. I've actually seen them live. So. That was the quickest answer yet. <laughs> <laughs> Strictly or Love Island? Neither. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> AI, threat or opportunity? Threat, I'm afraid. I just think the risk to a lot of people's jobs will be a, one of the challenges of the future. Thank you very much. And finally, Andy, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing in investing? I think implementing is implementation and thinking really hard about how you implement strategies is just so important. The reality is that you can come up with a really great investment idea, but if you actually put it in place poorly, certainly from a time perspective, it takes a long while to do it, but certainly from a cost efficiency perspective, it can actually damage, obviously, part of the reason for going into the first place. So I think mm-hmm. that's something I really am passionate about and something I think about a lot. So. Well, Andy, thanks so much for the time you've given us today. Really enjoyed the conversation around real assets and property. Good luck with your running. And I'm going to be looking forward to my invite to your next fancy dress party. (laughs) As long as you wear something interesting. So (laughs) thanks, guys. Thank you. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.